This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Catastrophe pileups! The DNC hack! Blueberries! And ley lines! Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release, and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. So, uh, we actually are in our hotel in, in, in Indianapolis. Uh, we arrived a little early this year for an exciting <coughs> Pelgrane Summit. Ken, did you enjoy the Pelgrane Summitry? I did. It was um, as enjoyable as a business meeting in Indianapolis can be, which is a low ceiling, but we pressed right up against it. Yes. So, uh, consequently, uh, I hope you'll bear with us for a little bit of uh, rough audio. Uh, we are uh, in our hotel room in Indianapolis. We have our choice of being in the front of the suite where people will be talking as they go by, talking about their new utility kilts they've just purchased or uh, uh, what they're planning to do with their magic decks. Or we can be back where we have chosen to be uh, in the inner part of the suite, which is uh, just near a giant outdoor air conditioning unit. Overlooking the scenic air shaft. Yes. And you will also, uh, the coughs and snorts and shuffles made by uh, the one person while listening to the other uh, will also appear uh, on this podcast because unusually uh, we are both recording into the same microphone. Woohoo! So that means that our lovely audio editor, uh, Rob Borges, who usually snips out uh, some of our <coughs> sounds, uh, will be unable to do so. Even the Winnipegist of magic cannot fully soothe that particular um, uh, bronchial guitar. So uh, please bear with us. Uh, this might be a uh, Indianapolis tradition uh, in future years. Cross fingers! The clatter of searching through your suitcase for your dice, the thump of bags wide open for extra gaming books, and the general attitude of fetor and funk in the air tell us <laughs> we've entered a special Gen Con edition of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, Frent, Patreon backer Frent, asks, paraphrased, what do you think of worlds where the history remains stable for a long time, and then a whole series of catastrophes pile up when the continuity begins? Star Wars, Marvel DC, World of Darkness, etc. And I think Frent, our friend Frent, may be egging the pudding a bit. Robin, do you... 
feel that Trent wants us to condemn them? Yes, I think, as is often the case on the show, that the, a thumb is being placed on the scale as the question is asked. And uh, yes, of course, from a perspective of uh, realism and plausibility, the idea that a setting ticks along for uh, hundreds of years, or in fact, if, if I may be allowed to introduce a bet noir of my own <laughs> for hundreds of thousands of years, which of course is uh, much longer than all of human history. And, and uh, longer than most elven history. Longer than most elven history. One of the things I like about Grant is that the history is 1,500 years long, basically, and, uh, and that's play. So, uh, from a realistic point of view, of course, yes, it, it doesn't make sense to have a long period of Pacific nothing going on, then followed by 14,000 things all going on in a short span of time. But Once a, per summer, for example. Right. But Ken, <laughs> if I may lead the witness, from a dramaturgical point of view... From a dramaturgical point of view, the point of a setting for drama is to set the drama at the point of highest action. And that turns out to be during globe-girdling catastrophes, oncoming apocalyptes, and uh, perhaps even falls and rises of the Sith. So you are telling the story at the point where the history became exciting, because quite frankly, history with Jedi or Atlanteans or aliens or vampires is never going to be particularly plausible. And none of those settings, in fairness, give a hoot about verisimilitude, even in the way that, say, the Bourne trilogy makes verisimilitude a realism, quasi-realism, a value of the story. Uh, the World of Darkness, while it says it is set in our world, even so much as it says it's set in our world, only our world in a gothic punk song, not our actual world. And they say in the very first page of the very first vampire book, this is our world, only darker and cooler and more mysterious and Ergo, yeah. less plausible. A so, world that is tuned for dramatic sensibility. So don't type to us on AOL mess about it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> on, on the AOL message don't board. Don't dial up and... Yes. Uh, we, we sense what's about to come and we're having none of it. We're, we're, we're not part of it. We're, we're young and, and, and revolutionary, but we're not morons. We know what's going on here. So the, uh, so the dramaturgical point is that, yes, obviously... Uh, if you look, for example, at the closest parallel to the modern shared universe, the Arthurian uh, corpus or the Greco-Roman mid-cycles, all of the stories are set at moments of climax and chaos, as opposed to during uh, the part where Mallory would say, and Arthur ruled well and wisely for 40 years. Then comes the Grail quest. He doesn't set adventures during those 40 years, except maybe a one-off where Launcelot fights the Loathly Worm or Sir um, uh, uh, Gawain finds a, a giant and uh, doesn't get his head chopped off correctly or whatever it is. And those are like little one-off moments that are in the past continuity in the same way that you know DC trundled along for a while just beating up the prankster or the Joker without having a globe-girdling apocalypse, which it didn't have until the 80s. So it spent 40 years just having normal kinds of crises uh, on infinite Earths, or on, on two Earths, before yeah. it had an infinite number of crises. Uh, and, many of them involving giant turtles. Right. My, but, my favorite Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy <laughs> Giant Turtle Olsen. Well, there's so many... We could spend all day talking about favorite Jimmy Olsons, and perhaps we will. Well, I feel we've already answered this question. <laughs> yeah. The implicit question is, what's your favorite what, Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen? Olsen? That's <laughs> obviously what Frent meant when he asked the question. Is If you could be in any Jimmy Olsen cartoon, <laughs> obviously it's the one where he has a beetle wig grafted to his head, goes back in time, and becomes... Uh, and meets uh, King David in uh, Bible times and defeats Goliath with his knowledge 
of um, uh, future uh, uh, slingshots or something. And, and, and last time I looked, those issues were still surprisingly affordable. <laughs> yes, uh, re- weirdly affordable, but no doubt the new cool Jimmy Olsen will also begin to have whack adventures now that he's on the CW instead of the staid CBS. And so we'll have a tall, good-looking, chiseled Jimmy Olsen who turns into an ant or um, uh, has other wacky fun. They're just crazy enough to do that, but how do we digress? <laughs> I, think, I think there may have been a digression. Robin, um, do you have a thought on how to make a serial apocalypse more palatable to consumers who rightly, like our friend Frent, find them uh, ridiculous when taken in the, uh, in the aggregate? Well, I think this uh, starts to dovetail into the uh, sort of forced story arc idea, right? That if you feel that the role-playing game uh, continuity that you're being presented with is uh, being imposed on you of, oh, now we all have to play the, uh, you know, the, the, the werewolf, Marvel Civil War, the, the Marvel Civil War, or the, or the werewolf virus, or whatever, and we were doing just fine without all that stuff. Uh, if you want to turn that on its head, as someone who's creating the possibility of a continuity, I think you have to create it so that it is modular and you use as much of it as you have to. Because if you are running a role playing game campaign, guess what? You only need as much apocalypse as required to introduce stakes for your player characters. Whereas when Marvel or DC decide to do a series-wide event, or or sort of a line-wide event, there has to be something happening to Superman and Batman and the Spectre and uh, Ambush Bug across a a zillion different places. Whereas uh, you only need enough of that stuff happening to happen to your players. So six people or one town, potentially. So as a, uh, a role-playing game GM, you can pare that way down and uh, remember that it is true with any continuity, only the stuff that you introduce on stage matters and is relevant. So maybe there's a big bunch of description about your uh history and the six previous cataclysms, well, don't mention the other five cataclysms, just mention the one that is involved with your uh, own particular campaign. Now, when you get to fictional worlds that you're consuming in passive media, I think part of the problem is that it's not just that it's implausible to you because you're thinking about this timeline issue, but just because you can see the wires moving, right? right. And it's be- and in many cases, it seems obviously cynical that oh, look at that! The reason we have to have another Marvel Civil War is the last Marvel Civil War did really well, right? Right. It's like if after you know our Civil War, we were like, well, you know, we've probably solved this slavery thing, but maybe we should have another Civil War about Jim Crow because the first one killer ratings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything about the treatment of Iron Man at Marvel, but. Um, <laughs> I think enough water is under that bridge. uh, But basically, one of the difficulties is that you... uh, Also, those big events can kind of warp the characters out of shape. Right. Where you can see the, oh, here's the edict that's come down for this storyline to happen. Or you can just see, oh, here's the commercial need for suddenly, you know, uh, Star Trek Voyager is uh, kind of boring and stupid. Let's introduce a new big villain for this arc and change everything or let's, you know, take the premise out of Sleepy Hollow and, <laughs> yes. and try a new premise, uh, which I think season three of Sleepy Hollow, is, as far as I can tell, is 
Ichabod Crane Ordoveritatis agent. So I'm <laughs> curious to see that train wreck uh, when they well, went um, season three. With, with, without Abby, there is, I will say, categorically, there is no reason to watch the show. Uh, uh, you are correct with an asterisk, <laughs> yes. which we could. I, I think which, we just found our episode title yes. correct with an asterisk, yes. which is also our title for every other episode. episode. Yes, and all of humanity. And all of humanity. Yes. Uh, which is, I am curious from the standpoint of uh, a watcher of dramatic construction and/or train wrecks. <laughs> and/or train wrecks. I am curious to see the first episode of season three. As a but train wreck I, connoisseur. Yes, but I think Valerie is going to be boycotting for precisely that entirely correct reason. Right. <laughs> have we uh, have have we gotten every corner of of the question of serial apocalypses? Is there a is there another? I, I think element? we can still go back. To, I think we haven't talked enough yet about how uh, you can do it better. Right. So yeah. uh, the one thing I've said so far is you can make it modular. Mm-hmm. But what else would you suggest as how to how to have big interesting things happen in your campaign without having that sense of the wire showing of oh look they need to reboot the line they've done this and wrecked all of our favorite things. Uh, I guess, you know, the, another big example, of course, is the D&D wrecking of the Forgotten Realms, mm-hmm, right. where uh, uh, Ed and, and Bob, Ed Greenwood and R.A. Salvatore, uh, knew what was going to, what the end point of that was going to be, so they carefully snuck in uh, backstory elements into their novels of the destruction of the Forgotten Realms. So here's the stuff that we could, when, when a new regime comes in and asks us to undo everything we're currently yes, asking to this do, is, this we've is already, the shiny gold we've already laid the... This is the, um, uh, this is the, 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 um, the Jedi saying, no, there is one other. Yes, <laughs> right. in, in case of unreboot, right. break glass. Yes. Yeah, or the, uh, the, the classic example, um, which is true, is that in the first Bourne movie, when they ended the first Bourne movie, they had no idea they were ever going to do another Bourne movie, and it ends with Brian Cox doing the testimony and just listing off all of these nonsensical codename operations. And so when they go back to the next Bourne movie, they're like, well, we kind of set fire to Treadstone. We can't have Treadstone still around. What can we do? And someone said, well, we just listed a bunch of code names. Let's take one of those code names, ret- clone it to be the old cover name for Treadstone, and have Treadstone just moved under Blackbriar. Well, if you watch the new Bourne movie, and this is not a spoiler, at the very beginning, um, uh, Julia Stiles, uh, Nikki, is downloading, she's hacked into the CIA, and she goes to a folder, <laughs> helpfully labeled Covert Operation Programs. Right, and that's and because Turtles <laughs> all the way down is too long <laughs> it to be too a long. Yes, it, it, well, it violates the, the MS-DOS um, uh, the, the file name. Oh, right, it's, it's government IT. <laughs> exactly, right. So, um, when, you cl- when she clicks on it, there's a whole list of things, and, um, you know, there's like links and all manner of other things. And so you can just look at it and say, all right, we're going to burn this one in this in this movie. But here's our list of new ones that we've <laughs> sort of um, uh, sunk in there for yes. Borns 5 and 6. This is to, pipe to go we've learned that we have to lay it. We learned we have to lay it. And I think that when you're presenting it in, um, in a story, you can do what DC tried to do for a while before the sheer ridiculousness of it just overwhelmed them, which was to say that, a switch got turned. When they did the invasion storyline, they were like, apparently something happened, and none of the characters in the continuity remember the crisis, but it's all clearly referencing the crisis that has made Earth visible to all these alien races. And that's why everything is going to get more dangerous and horrible from now on. And then eventually, a new uh, uh, pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph, and they undid all that careful um, uh, uh, groundwork, which is fair, because the invasion was not a super great storyline anyway. But 
they then go back to the serial apocalypse. But I think if you say, no, there's times in history where nothing much goes on, like Gibbon's classic, you know, the happy arc of the Roman Empire under the five good emperors. Yeah. But Gibbon does not tell us the story of the five good emperors. There's nothing sarcastic Gibbon, to say. <laughs> Gibbon, Gibbon begins with Commodus and, and starts rubbing his hands together <laughs> and saying, now the crap hits the fan. And similarly, you can say in this mystical continuity, something has happened. An archangel has died. Superman has been turned evil once too often. And so the, the, the switch has busted off the universe. Whatever it is, the thing that has happened is now bringing the end times. And White Wolf, in fairness, pretty much did that. Because they said at the very beginning of most of their lines, all the supernaturals fear the coming apocalypse. And they sort of built that because they knew they were writing a meta plot, And so they built that in. So their serial apocalyptes, while ludicrous in many respects were at least foreshadowed and could be taken as, no, you're living in the end times. That's why we set the game now in 1992, which back in 1992 looked more like the end times than it does today from the from the retrospective of 2016. Right. Because once you st- pull out one apocalypse and then you resolve it, mm. then you've got to, what you, are you just going to go back to, you know, the you, store has you, been robbed in Smallville? Right. You have the, you have, well, you have the supernatural problem. You yeah. know, we've, we've just dragged uh, one or other of the brothers from hell and we've beat up God and we've uh, killed Satan and it's now you're just going to stomp werewolves? Is that going to be dramatically satisfying? And while in the in the minute those episodes turn out to be dramatically satisfying if you're trying to build a season arc it does have the then what happened Odysseus? Well then I came back then I was done then I just stayed with Penelope on Ithaca and nothing ever happened to me again that's what happened but you can't say that in the world of television. Right. Well Season 11, the octopus men show up. Uh, And when the octopus men show up, it's time to move to another segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So, yeah! An 
improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The retinal scan that you underwent before you were allowed to listen to this segment tells you that once more we have crept into the shadowy, mysterious, and perhaps even dangerous confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And this time, Ken, I'm sure about this time last year you figured that now we would be telling a story about how the Russian intelligence service was intervening in the U.S. election on behalf of the Republican candidate. I'm sure that that's something that you've anticipated throughout your life, uh, beginning as a young Republican. And finally, it's come to this. It's come to this, that once more, uh, the KGB is going all out uh, to help the Democrats. No! (laughs) (laughs) No. To help the used-to-be Democrat. Yes. (laughs) And used-to-be KGB. And the used-to-be KGB. Well... It's similarly, the question of how used to be <laughs> remains an interesting and perhaps uh, relevant one. But yes, uh, I cannot pre- presume to have had the, the foresight that uh, other uh, people who were born after the wall fell claim to have had. But it is uh, the sort of thing that happens when Vladimir Putin has, has two chess pieces and only one of them can get to the end game. He has to decide which one he likes better and has begun, it looks like, perhaps, to put his thumb on the scales uh, for his wholly owned subsidiary, as opposed to his controlling interest. Uh, right. So uh, <laughs> let's let's back up and uh, and and the problem with doing a segment uh, related to Trump is like the Ford problem cubed. Because <laughs> the, when we would do a Rob Ford story, it's like it's something else, some other giant buffoon shoe going to drop in the, in the ten, 10 days, days before we air the episode. And this time, it's like what. 14,000 things are going to happen between now and and air date. So, you know, if if we're all, you know, wearing hazmat suits as we listen to this, perhaps this will seem like an exercise in nostalgia. But so what do we know for sure about uh, Russian intelligence involvement in the uh, DNC leaks and in the uh, election in general? Well, we don't know anything for sure because Russian intelligence practices and has practiced since it was Russian intelligence the first time under the czars. Uh, deniability and what they call maskerovka, where they do operations that exist only to cover up other operations. And so we do not have a digital fingerprint, because that is not how the computer world actually works, that says, oh, this was Sergei in the occupied Ukraine, you know, hacking into the DNC servers. He'd be doing a bad job right. if he, he didn't know it was Sergei. Yeah, Sergei would, would not be living to put a digital fingerprint anywhere. There is, you know, it is well known by everyone that there are legions of people who are trained to a pretty high degree in computer security and computer anti-security who work on a contract or fully employed basis by one or another of the multifarious arms of Russian intelligence. And it is at least the kind of thing that FBI officials will say off the record that it was pretty clearly the Russians that did it, which means that it was pretty clearly the Russians that did it. Because if they said it on the record, then you have to do something about it. And I think we've learned over the last eight years that no one wants to do anything about the Russians. So they're just going to stand pat and see what happens, which, to be fair, has gotten everyone as far as they are now. So 
why mess with it? Right. And uh, I, the overall theory uh, has been for the last few years, there's no good option, so let's not do any of the bad options. Right. Yes, let's let's wait and see. So, as a Burkean, I suppose I have to agree with that as a strategy, if not necessarily as a tactic. So, the, um, uh, so what happened was, for those who have not been paying attention, and God bless you, the, uh, or perhaps people in lovely foreign climes whose biggest problem is what flavor margarita they're going to have today, as opposed to will their storied democracy collapse around their ears right. Although, sooner course, or later. If, if you're in Europe, uh, <laughs> we are now discovering that Putin heavily financed the, uh, the Leave campaign for Brexit. So. Well, Putin has been heavily financing a lot of political action, much as the Soviets heavily financed political action in their interests before, and the czars heavily financed yeah. political action. This, again, goes back to the 1880s at least right. as part of the Russian toolbox. It's just the czars never threw additional effort into Gamergate. No, they did not, because at the time, there was no ethics in, in, <laughs> game, in game journalism. <laughs> it was just uh, devil take the hindmost savage war of well, all it, against it was, all. It was futile. Yeah, it was. Basically. It was. It was It was completely un, untrammeled by any human decency. But that's... Perhaps beside the point, um, the uh, so that we we know or we know quote unquote FBI know that the uh, FSB probably but maybe the SVR hacked into the Democrat National Committee uh, web servers and downloaded a bunch of stuff that makes the Democratic National Committee look uh, partisan and awful, which can't possibly have been news to anyone except journalists um, who are apparently the least informed people in the world because this was a shock. Uh, oh my God! The DNC put a thumb on the scale. How could that have happened? <laughs> There's politics in this. You're, you know. you're saying that a 25-year-old political machine that is legendarily ruthless and horrible did something ruthless and/or horrible? <laughs> I'm shocked and amazed. <laughs> Nixon lied. Tell me more. <laughs> so the um, uh, and, and then they dumped it out. And so the question has not really focused on how they got in because obviously, if you're the FSB, one assumes you can crack through a. Um, uh, um, um, you know, a server that is only maintained to the level of security that a national political committee does. But a, what else have they got? And since we know for a fact that Hillary's personal server as Secretary of State was completely unguarded for years and years and years, we have to assume they have all of that. So anything else in there of the thirty-three thousand emails that she deleted? And again, if you believe that they're all yoga practice information, good for you. Live your best life. But they weren't. Um, so there is more than one gun out there ready to smoke at a moment's notice on the command of, one assumes, Putin. Although, with the Russians, you can never be sure. So the question is, why did they do it now, and did they do it to help Trump? And the reason they would do it to help Trump is because Trump is pretty much a wholly owned subsidiary of Vladimir Putin, and this is not, again, news to anyone except journalists. His uh, real estate operations, when he got them out from under the Italian mob, they went under the thumb of the Russian mob. Russian oligarchs are hugely invested in all of his properties. His shaky financial structure is backed by, one imagines, shadowy cash-only loans from banks somewhere in the Cayman Islands that no one's supposed to know about, or whatever. And the Russian oligarchy is you know, completely intertwined, not just with the Russian mob, but again, with the Russian government. And that is because without uh, the Russian mob, you can't particularly run the Russian government. And Putin, again is smart enough to use every tool in his box, including, of course, WikiLeaks. This is the bump to let everyone know that despite being played by Bernard Cumberbatch, Julian Assange is a Russian agent and has been a Russian agent forever, and that is why he is doing Putin's bidding, releasing this stuff. Right. He, he was on the Russian cable channel, right, for goodness yes. sakes. It's like, but the only thing that surprised me about that is like how 
little he is bothering to attempt to be like a good cat's paw now. It's like, <laughs> I guess, being stuck in an Ecuadorian embassy. For... It, 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 I imagine it makes you fractious and captious. Yes. Even in the best of circumstances. Because normally, when you leak information in order to harm them politically, you do not say, I'm releasing this information in order to harm them politically. <laughs> and when you do that, you don't say, and it's really mostly my own personal interest that I have in mind, <laughs> because I'd really like to get out of this, uh, uh, this embassy, miserable Ecuadorian hellhole. embassy. Yes. No. I mean, good, it's in London, right? I'm sure they have. Uh, well, I mean, you know, they get the Ecuadorian takeout. I'm sure, yes. but there's just a li- he has a limited arena to pursue his real interests, which is, of course, serial statutory rape. But anyway, uh, on the larger point of the Russians, getting away from Julian, uh, on the larger point of the Russians, the question is: Is this a warning shot? The uh, Hillary better back off because we've got bigger stuff. Is it just a tit for tat because? Uh, the exposure, the, the theory is the exposure of the, of the Russian uh, athlete doping uh, scandal, which goes throughout the Russian Olympic program, that the exposure to that, the assumption is that it was the FBI that helped expose that, and that therefore this is a tag, last tag, you know, you try that, we'll try it harder. So the question is, is Putin fighting Vietnam or is Putin fighting Czechoslovakia, right? Is, is, is he escalating only as we escalate? Or is this the first tank over the border and everything's going to be crushed beneath his iron heel, cyber-wise, as right. we say on CBS? Because a big part of it, you know any government operation, including an intelligence operation, is finding stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a busy case officer is the best case officer in the, worlds of, in the words of Miles Copeland. <laughs> right. And so even during the Cold War, a lot of Soviet efforts were just, let's just create chaos. Yeah. That was essentially the Well, because their, in, their interest was to, you know, the, to weaken the West and chaos weakens order and the West right. was the order. So and that think, made sense. You know, uh, bang for buck, uh, helping Brexit is probably a way bigger <laughs> uh, goal than, I guess, if, if Trump if actually Trump got won, elected, Trump uh, sorry elected. Brexit, but you're on the back pages again. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, babies beware. <laughs> Maybe it's <laughs> really for you. just likes crying babies and it's, it's, a, it's a long con. But, you know, they, because... The, the well, way, he is bald and yeah. petulant. Because that's the other weird thing is that they uh, have troll farms that, you know, stir up nonsense on, on Twitter. And, right, that, uh, that, 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 um, uh, that, that post uh, angry reviews of Ghostbusters or yeah. whatever. Yeah, it's... It's really, and a lot of these um, uh, these neo-Nazi accounts that are all like tweeting out, in you know, Russia, make America ruins you, right? Make America great again are being tweeted out actually from Lvov, where yes. they, you know, only know what they see on TV about America's greatness. Yeah, in, yeah. in Cyrillic. <laughs> yeah, so. right. Yeah, the well, I mean, again, it's a it's part of that Maskarovka, and it's the same way, for example, that the Russians only had to pay one activist in a hundred in the new left during the great days of the of the nuclear freeze or all the various peace movements. You can count on the 99 other Because the 99 guns. other will just flock right to that pilot fish. And, you know, again, none of this is news. If you've read anything about Russian intelligence or Soviet intelligence, this is the same play that has been done over and over with the exciting addition of cyber to make it interesting to the, you know, kids demographic. And a Republican candidate to go right along. <laughs> right that. along. That's, that's a little unprecedented. That is. No, the, the highest level of... Soviet influence in the government, not counting Vice President Wallace, of course, was Teddy Kennedy, who, of course, in 1984 famously made, tried to open a back channel of the Soviets to ask what he could do to secure the uh, unelection of Ronald Reagan, to defeat Reagan in 84. Anything you want me to do on the floor of the Senate, I'll do. Hook me up. And the Soviets possibly realizing that there was more going on than 
Teddy Kennedy's and, ego and said, the, we'll get the right back to going, you Where's your source for that? Where's, <laughs> where, where should they go for the sourcing on that? Um, I can I, I, I can put it into the show notes. Okay. I, I don't have the um, uh, the, the specific uh, you know the economist site or whatever, but it's in there. So uh, I guess uh, we've talked for a while, so I, I don't think we need to go into uh, the gaming implications of this. Except well, I, I think the gaming implications are pretty great. I mean, you've got you know shadowy Russian hackers, you've got SF, FSB uh, manipulation, you've got oligarchs, you've got you know uranium futures. I think it's more about using your gaming skills in real life. So uh, <laughs> buy preparedness. Yes, buy lots of preparedness points, and uh, perhaps put dots into a haven. Uh, so the last time we uh, I posed this question of uh, uh, if you had to vote for one or the other, you were still thinking, well, it's still possible that, I know that Trump would be terrible, but it's still possible that Hillary would be terribler. Has that, has that changed since we last spoke? Well, my, my, yes, one convention and many, many Trump moments later, the new answer is, gun to your head, who do you vote for, Trump or Hillary? The answer is, pull the trigger! <laughs> pull the damn trigger, you coward! <laughs> Uh, we're very sorry for everyone's uh, earbuds after that. So uh, as you uh, pull out your bleeding earbuds, let us move along to a commercial in the next segment. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. So, we are in Indianapolis, and so naturally the thing that has fallen... Uh, into our consciousness is food. Where do we get good food in the convention area? And we may address this next week in our uh, wrap-up section, but the answer is come a few days early and eat outside the convention <laughs> eat well area. well outside the convention area. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's time for another uh, episode of that most popular of segments, the Food Hut. And partly in picking the segments for tonight's uh, show, you may notice that I've picked the... Uh, easy ones that don't require us to have our libraries nearby or to do lots of research. And uh, Ken very rarely puts a request into the uh, list of topics. And uh, I have to confess that I have uh, skipped by this topic for a while uh, because 
Uh, I think we better hope that Ken has 14 minutes on this topic, because I think I have one minute on <laughs> one it. One minute on it. Uh, but Ken's topic is blueberries, king of fruit. So, Ken, uh, you wish to uh, talk about blueberries and inform our listeners of the deep knowledge you have of blueberries. So if you're going to tell the story of the blueberry, where do you start? Where do you begin? So, okay, I will start with my one blueberry fact. Okay. Which is that, do you know the natural enemy of the blueberry? Uh, me. I am the natural, <laughs> I am the blueberry's most feared predator. Well, okay, man is always <laughs> yes. the number one enemy of everything, and man. of course man. Uh, but aside from you, it is the northern walking stick. So ah. not only is blueberry the king of fruit, but it has the most badass of predatory insects. Because, of course, we all know that a walking stick is a bug that looks like a stick with great big legs. So the coolest, you know, the, he doesn't, the blueberry doesn't antagonize mere aphids or scale insects. It has uh, made a lifelong enemy. The, the joker to the blueberry's do, uh, Batman is the northern walking stick. Okay, um, where you start with blueberries is you start, um, and in my experience, you used to start a little earlier in the year, but you start late June, early July now, when blueberries, uh, in season and in affordable quality, show up in my produce market. And once they do that, uh, if, if you are in my house and perhaps married to me, you are used to every dessert for a month being blueberries. <laughs> and sometimes it's blueberries with yogurt, Sometimes it's blueberries with creme fraiche. Sometimes it's blueberries with ice cream. But it's always blueberries because there's nothing better than blueberries. And if you do not live in a blueberry-adjacent clime, you're in the tropics, perhaps. They have no berries there. I have heard anecdotes of Brazilian travelers coming to America from the land of beautiful tropical fruit and deliciousness that falls off the very trees into your mouth and tasting a blueberry and immediately applying for asylum because they... Had never tasted anything as wonderful That's as blueberries. It's a little-known blueberry clause it in is U.S. immigration. a little-known blueberry clause. <laughs> no doubt, in the next ten days, Donald Trump will denounce it, and it will become the vastly well-known <laughs> He'll blueberry declare clause. himself the enemy of blueberries. All blueberries. The, he will uh, be doing a photo op with a, with a flamethrower in northern Michigan. And, and uh, the northern walking stick lobby will <laughs> exactly. line up behind him. Rubbing its, its long, tenderly arms together to make an eerie, chittering yeah. noise. But enough about Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Um, <laughs> the uh, now, so the blueberries, in my opinion, uh, and therefore an incontrovertible fact, are uh, the perfect combination of edibility. They don't have a million little tiny seeds to annoy you. They're they're basically seedless in America the way that they're they're harvested. Uh, unlike the Saskatoon. Unlike the Saskatoon. Unlike the totally delicious blackberry. Unlike the less delicious but also tasty raspberry, which are also in season. Oh, controversial stand. Controversial rating, stand. Rating the blackberry above the raspberry. Yeah, I'll rate the blackberry above the raspberry because blackberries are really good. Uh, you, bar- you buried the lead, but continue. But continue. But the blueberry doesn't have any of that. It's just pure berry goodness. And you uh, taste the perfectness of the flavor. Uh, it also makes a superb fruit pie. I would say that, except for the apple, which is hallowed by sacred tradition. Blueberry is the best fruit pie. And that is not least because you can put ginger into a blueberry pie and make it even better, which you cannot do with most other fruit pies. Now, are we talking uh, cultivated blueberries, or do you have access to wild blueberries? I do not have a wild blueberry hookup. I have not yet gone to a blueberry picking soiree anywhere. Um, I get the blueberries that have been cultivated by good people in Michigan and driven down in trucks. 
It used to be, in order to get wild blueberries in Ontario, you would have to uh, be on a drive into northern Ontario and stop at a roadside stop. But mm -hmm. they have started selling them in Toronto produce stores. So mm. uh, not only do we have uh, access to uh, cultivated blueberries, which get better during the season, of mm. course, like in our crazy modern world, they're available year-round, but a big chunk of that time, they're sort of yeah. sour. And Outside so blueberry season, buy frozen blueberries. That's the answer. And you can buy them in bulk, and they're super tasty because they are picked and frozen at the peak of blueberry ripeness. So frozen blueberries are terrific. If you've been off frozen fruit because as a kid you remember them being mushy and terrible, that was the past. That was ancient times. Frozen fruit now is outside the two months or three months out of the year, it's fresher and better than the, than the fruit you can get in the, in the produce store. So certainly if you're making a pie or a compote or a cobbler or blueberry muffins or whatever, go ahead, use the frozen blueberries. Enjoy my, my compliments. But... During but, the season, but, yeah, there's but nothing better. The wild blueberry, the wild blueberry, which is smaller. It's basically the ice wine of blueberries because it's much smaller, but the sugar content is just as high as a larger cultivated uh, blueberry. So they're less sour. They're super sweet and delicious. If you can ever get your hands on them, uh, they are uh, really fabulous. If a good cultivated blueberry is a ten, the wild is a thirteen. Uh, I was tipped off to the fact that the blueberry information sheet that I was looking at when I was researching this segment had to be mostly wrong because it said. The wild blueberry is uh, rarely eaten and is just used in blueberry muffins. So maybe maybe America has inferior wild blueberries, but we have superior cultivated blueberries. That's what we have. We have tons and tons and tons of delicious cultivated blueberries. Right. But our wild blueberries in Ontario, you're not going to waste them by sticking them in some some muffin. And you're not going to send them to America to be eaten. No. No, you'll you keep them for come, yourself. You Much come. like Canadian ice wine is kept for itself. Uh, we have lots of ice wine now, and we'll be happy to sell you. Some happy to sell, sell us the ice wine. We, we have an oversupply so now. So customers who are listening, rush to your liquor store, pass the produce market, pick up some blueberries, pick up some ice wine. Uh, you can probably macerate the blueberries in the ice wine and then die happy and of an insulin coma. There, there you go. <laughs> I, would, I would imagine. Um, another thing that you can obviously do with blueberries, and a lot of people don't know this, is you can make a blueberry reduction that is crazy good on pork chops. Um, and again, try that with a strawberry. Try that with a... You could probably do it with a blackberry, but tell me straight up that raspberry reduction is going to be good on pork chops, and I will laugh at you. Uh, I would not tell you that. However, both the raspberry and the blueberry at the start of the segment are great in salads as well. Yes, yes, So you have a mixed... Raspberries green. are actually really good in salads. Yeah. Because they play better with cheese, I think, than blueberries do. That's right. Uh, the, the blueberry salad, you want to have uh, probably some uh, a, a nut component as mm -hmm. well, like yeah. a pecan You'd, or... Uh, yes, if you are, if you if you have the the part of your tongue that doesn't think pecans are terrible, then you should uh, right or that or the nut of your or the salad yes. nut of your the choice. salad nut of your choice. Yes, uh, blueberries and almonds, for example, are a, a known combo and would be terrific in a salad. I would probably do it with arugula or another uh, salad green that has a little character to it. You don't want to just dump it on romaine or even oh. on spinach. Yeah, no, no, no. no you, yeah, you, you need a good mixed you, green. You, but again, it's mixed green season too. Yep. It's the same time as blueberry season. A benevolent creator has it, arranged this for it's you. It's like things grow during it's blueberry like things season. Grow during, <laughs> silence, <laughs> pagan. Uh, alert, <laughs> alert food fans desperate for new information about food. Yes. Food grows out of the ground. It is <laughs> during a season. Nourished by the sun. Maybe in Canada that's how it works. <laughs> So you can um, uh, you can make a blueberry reduction and uh, serve it with pork chops, and it is phenomenal because the blueberries have enough acid that they can wake up the pork chop, and enough sweetness that they you don't are want a sleepy delicious. pork chop. You don't want a sleepy pork chop, but the the combo is superb. So it's basically the reduction is 
blueberries, a little brown sugar maybe if you feel like it, but you don't have to, and because the blueberries are super good, and whatever kind of herbal note you wanted in your pork chop to begin with, which might be summer savory, it might be whatever, but dump that in there, melt it all down until it's a, a slithery goo, maybe glaze it up with some butter if you're feeling like it's not glazy enough, and then pour that over your pork chop that you've cooked with salt, pepper, and whatever else you put on your pork chop, and you will thank me later because it is phenomenal. It's super good, and you would not think blueberries and pork, but I was at a restaurant that did a menu, and the restaurant was called 1776, and it did menus from colonial America, and among them was blueberries and pork, and I thought, well, this is crazy. Why would Paul Revere eat this? And I ate it, and I was like, why would he leave his house to warn people that the British were coming <laughs> if he had this on his plate? So it was outside of growing season. It was outside of growing season. That's what British attack in April. They'd attacked in June during the yeah. season. We'd all be putting the queen on our money, and the Nazis would have won. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that checks out. Yeah. So any closing thoughts on blueberries before we uh, head on to our last segment? Um, I do want to emphasize that making a blueberry pie, uh, you probably want to use the candy ginger, if you can get it, the, the crystallized ginger, um, because that... Even if it doesn't melt into the pie, it's super tasty to bite into. If you use fresh ginger, you're going to run the risk that the cooking process is not going to modulate the ginger enough. And if you use the powdery ginger, well, first of all, you're using powdered ginger, so you so should don't do that. Don't do that unless you really have to. But um, uh, there's like ginger pulp you can use, and you could mix that in, and that's all right. But I think that the that the crystallized ginger has a little of the extra sweetness. And again, because blueberries are not actually super sweet, they're not strawberries. You want a little of that extra sweetness. Even blueberry pie recipes, you'll put a little bit of sugar in. Don't put the sugar in. Put in crystallized ginger, or maybe half and half, and you'll have a phenomenal blueberry pie. And people will say, what's the secret of your blueberry pie? And you can say, Cartas is the secret of my blueberry right. pie. And if you have wild blueberries, and you're going to make them into a pie, don't, don't do, do that. that. Just eat Just the wild eat blueberries. Just eat the wild blueberries with, then, with uh, uh, fresh whipped cream, because there's nothing better in the world than cream and blueberries. Exactly. Well, I think we may have gotten somewhere near 15 minutes. I on, think so. Blueberries. And if not, we've gotten everyone hungry for blueberries, which is half the battle. Exactly. So uh, if you are not in a blueberry-adjacent district, uh, I guess you will stick around after this exciting commercial message for our final segment of this Indianapolis Hotel Room podcast. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. As we wend our way up the creaking cobweb stairs, the portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowers down upon us. And that informs us that once more we're entering the confines of the parlor of the consulting occultist. And this time, uh, Morgan Ellis, 
our uh, Patreon backer, just as Frent was for our Gaming Hut segment, uh, has a topic that is so easy that Ken can do 15 minutes of it standing on his head, which uh, you don't have the... I, I, I just can't stand on my head for 15 minutes. Right. That's the problem. It's well, I was, I was going to tell them that you're yeah. currently standing on their head. Because oh, right, because of the, the mystery of radio. It's an audio medium. Right. No one except anyone who has met you right. would know would, the difference. Would doubt that. So most people. Right. Yeah. So, Ken, uh, ley lines. Uh, this is a topic that we have often addressed as part of other topics, but we, uh, as is our willy-nilly uh, want, have not done a 101 on it. So the 101 on ley lines. Okay, the 101 on ley lines is as follows. Ley lines are A, completely imaginary, B, totally awesome. The uh, ley line is a magical line or a current of energy or something else under the earth that is a conduit of magical power, and because of its magic, people built magical sites like your Stonehenge's and such on the nexus of ley lines or along a ley line to act as uh, little transformers to step down the ley line energy into the energy they needed to, you know, um, uh, curse their enemies or make the crops grow or, or whatever else you'd need magical energy for. A million household uses. But that story only goes back to the 1960s, where a guy named John Michelle wrote a terrific book called Views Over Atlantis, uh, which was about earth mysteries generally understood. The word ley line was coined by a perfectly nice man named Alfred Watkins, he was an amateur archaeologist, the deadliest kind, <laughs> and he had a number of uh, very good resolution uh, ordnance survey maps of Great Britain. He was a British person, and like many, many British people then and now, he enjoyed walking about the countryside, ideally with a stick and perhaps a dog of some sort, and he would go around, and as he would walk, he would... And, and when was this? This was in the 20s. In 1921, he coins the term ley line to describe the strange alignment that he had noticed between many ancient sites. So he would say, look, the steeple of that medieval church is on the straight line with this standing stone that I found in the yard. Right. That is on a straight line with this other steeple that is over the horizon right. line. Because it's unremarkable to be able to draw a straight line between two Two lines. things, yes. That's most lines. Yes. But Alfred Watkins would draw a straight line encompassing as many as five, six, or even eight things. And one hesitates to say that it's entirely down to the thickness with which Britain is bestrewn with things. <laughs> and, and the relative or narrowness. entirely of down to how fat Alfred Watkins' pencil was on any given day. <laughs> but the matter, of, the matter of fact truth is, there are a, a number of really fun things you can do you with maps. You took a dog and a walking stick and, and not a, a ruler? Is this what you're yes, telling me? You know, I hesitate to say. Because Alfred Watkins meant well. He's a terrific guy. He um, uh, published his book in uh, 1925, I believe, called The Old Straight Track, which set out his theory that the ancient peoples had used uh, basically theodolites and had surveyed these straight lines out, and that every ancient site eventually became a modern site because the pattern of worship would have been set 5,000 years ago or whenever, and as new people came in, they would say, where's the sacred spot? And the guys who lived there would say, right here. And they would say, we're, we're building a men here, here. Okay, cool. Good to have a men here. And then eventually the Christians would come in and say, well, you got a men here, here. Obviously this is a sacred spot. We're going to put a church here. And they would say, good. Glad to have a church here. And so, because the theory that Alfred Watkins was going on is that no one ever moved. Um, all the sacred spots were passed down sort of, first of all, by, you know, oral tradition, and then eventually just geographically, because if you're coming into a spot and you want to build something sacred and powerful, look for the sacred, powerful thing, build on that spot. 
Interestingly enough, um, people hoo-hooed his opinion because they were saying, what with all the invasions and brouhaha, there's no way that you could have kept track of that. There's no actual there, the tradition of the church to always build a, ch- a church on a menhir. Uh, for example, there's no church at Stonehenge, which you would think would be step one. You're wandering around yeah. Wiltshire, you want to build a church. Let's build it in Salisbury over the hill. No, let's build it right here. They've got Stonehenge. They didn't do that. But there are some indications you can see where the church did say, if you find a place that the locals are worshiping, show up and say, hey, did St. Mary ever show up in this place? Someone will say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Then you're golden. And so the the, the principle that people said was, oh, nonsense, the the things uh, got uh, turned higgledy-piggledy way too often. Well, modern DNA research indicates that, no, in fact, most British people haven't ever moved, that the same community has been there since the Ice Age retreated. And so it's less impossible that his method of transmission is flawed. That said, his maps are still artifacts. They're pareidolia. They're noticing patterns. But what he did as a fringe archaeological speculation became, into the, under the gentle ministrations of John Michel, a beautiful notion combining uh, key flows, which, which lets him bring in um, uh, feng shui and the patterns of... Uh, of built and natural structures in China. Right. Because, uh, because geomancy is something that's cross-cultural. Right, because you, everyone lives on the earth and everyone a, thinks it's magic because yeah. it pretty much is. It's full of you know animals and plants. and It makes goodness. blueberries. It makes blueberries, for example. Um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the cult of the ghost road in, in, in Germany, that there are certain places that ghosts walk and so you don't walk there, you don't put anything there, which is sort of the opposite of a ley line, but, you know, whatever. Right. Um, the uh, notion that fairies move in a straight path, which is almost as common as the notion that fairies move in a jagged path that has no straightness to it. Oh, those fairies always messing with always us. Always messing with us. But uh, John Michel, in the beautiful, perfect fashion of the New Age, took all the things that sounded cool like they blended together and put together a general theory of the Earth having its own acupuncture pattern that uh, he called telluric forces and that you could manipulate by the means of meditating at Stonehenge or going to any of the other magical overlaps of, of the Earth's energy flow, which tied into Ivan Sanderson's vile vortice theory, which is that there are places on the Earth that just uh, swallow up ships or make Bigfoots or whatever, and that that's why all these sightings happen in these constrained little geographical areas, not perhaps because those areas have short sight lines and populations of rural folk who want to make a nickel telling rich city slickers about Bigfoot. <laughs> And so this uh, notion of geographical patterning of anomalies had pre-existed Michel as well. Michel takes that, he takes uh, Watkins' straight lines, and he blends them all together, calls them ley lines, and that is why ley lines took over. And the power of that is one of the recently invented myths that is so right and powerful and amazing that you're always imagining that they must have made it up when people were really cooking with Renaissance right. gas. So it's, they didn't. it's completely anachronistic it's completely to have anachronistic. a pre-1920s occultist talking about ley lines. It's anachronistic to have a pre-1960s occultist talking about ley lines. If, a cult, if people are talking about ley lines between the 20s and the 60s, they're crank uh, archaeologists or naturalists or antiquarians. They're arguing about whether or not this, um, uh, the, 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 this, this the main steeple counts or you should use the secondary but older steeple. Right. So the, the original archaeological theory is not imputing actual magic to it. No, it's and merely... the innovation yes. of the 60s writer is to go, not only that, but they're real. They're, they're real and they're magic and they're like key flows. And I think it's the connection between feng shui and ley lines that really sort of, you know, unites it and sells it. 
And uh, Michel wrote a, a more recent book called The New View Over Atlantis, where he doubled down and added more uh, stuff that had come out since he, uh, you know, salted the mine. People had come out and found more stuff that he could then recycle and put back into the book. So I recommend reading the view, the new view of Atlantis instead of the view of Atlantis, just because it's thicker and has more good stuff in it. Um, thinner margins on the cover copy. Thinner margins on the cover. But Michel, again, he's he is an original mind in that he is putting together nonsense from other sources. He's not vomiting up the same nonsense over and over and over again, which I think. It elevates him up in the. He's a nonsense synthesizer rather than a nonsense aggregator. Exactly, or even a nonsense uh, regurgitator, which are the lowest of the low. Um, uh, one one should aim for synthesis, or ideally pure creation, but that is that only comes to once a generation. Um, and also, I think the myth that made it into pop culture the quickest, right? So that in the new Ghostbusters movie, they pull out a map and talk about ley lines, uh, which is uh, echoed in the original, but I don't know if they use the word ley line in the original, but certainly the concept of, you know, places of power, but in that, in the original, the idea is that they were put in place by somebody. Yeah, the, the, in the original, it's more sacred geometry than it is ley lines, because of course, right. Ivo Shandor was an architect and a surgeon, and um, uh, he built um, a, uh, a, a repository for ectoplasmic power. For, right. Uh, but... He did not necessarily build it on a ley line. Right. Like they don't mention ley lines, I think, at all. Um, if they do, it's during one of the endless reams of nonsense spouted by uh, Stance. It, it's not part of the story of why Dana's apartment is spook central. Right. Um, it's because Ivo Shando built it that way. But you could obviously say he also built it on a ley line. It's just that they don't right. say that when but they're the new one explicitly explicitly says part of ley the lines. Right. Ley lines. And that's because um, ley lines have had an additional. 30 years to filter into pop culture. And they are now, I suspect there's probably computer games that have, you know, ley line action. And if you're on a ley line, you get pluses and whatnot. It seems like the sort of thing that would have spread that way into in, into pop culture sensibility um, because it's a very gamery thing. To, right. To I'm sure in. six different studios are now working on their Pokemon equivalent where you're putting the ley lines together since that's. Since that's a natural, <laughs> although I guess they're just making sure that Pokalay doesn't have unfortunate consequence, uh, connotations, uh, which is too late. Um, but the uh, maybe they can just get everyone to be convinced that it should have been pronounced Lee lines all along, and no doubt we'll get an angry letter from a Welshman saying it was always pronounced Lee line, and I've been saying it lay uh, like a like a Nimrod or an American because we always get an angry Welshman <laughs> of whatever nationality he happens to be, right. Uh, I'm now fantasizing that there should be a pub here in Indy called the Angry Welshman. The Angry Welshman. And the reason he's angry is that all the other pubs closed too early, <laughs> and he's come here to save us. But again, perhaps I digress. <laughs> perhaps. Um, so, uh, if you are a magic character specializing in ley lines in a modern occult game, uh, what can you do with that? What are your cool powers? Uh, the cool power that you have with a ley line, ideally, is that um, it's twofold. One, ley lines are power transmission cables. So you can tap into them and use power, and you have to do it uh, with a ritual, because otherwise you'll fry yourself, just like if you tapped into a real power cable. Right. It's all, I mean, ley lines are the kind of things that are come up with after you've watched power transmission lines your whole life and said, what if those were magic and underground? Uh, and then that, it, it, uh, in the similar way to how all 19th century theorists thought everything was a steam engine, Freud thought the subconscious was a steam engine. Uh, Darwin thought the ecology was a steam engine. Everyone thinks everything's a steam engine in the 19th century. Everyone in um, uh, uh, the 60s 
thought of things in terms of electricity because that was the cool thing. Right. That so now everything's yeah. a computer. Right. So, so now, so what? What is the computer code behind ley lines? The, the computer behind ley lines. The interesting thing about uh, computer ley lines is you could have a distributed ley network, right? Because the thing about um, there are undersea cables that carry a lot of the data, but the sort of the model is that the data is always everywhere. That uh, individual packets travel any way that they can. So if you are a a digilay uh, magician instead of an old school lay magician, you have to stand on one lay spot and sort of be the uh, direct current of lay energy. If you're the digital lay guy, you're able to draw the inherent lay energy out of everything because everything is one aspect away from you know full power transmission. Right. So you've had surgery. You've had your uh, rib cage or your breastbone cracked open. And they've installed a GPS in you mm-hmm. as the locus of your uh, a magical GPS. Uh, yeah, magical G. Well, it's it's techno magic, right? Yeah, so right. It's yeah. A, a GPS, and the uh, this allows you to communicate. Obviously, the GPS system is part mm-hmm. of the lay system, so that we've now expanded the ley lines beyond uh, the mere confines of Earth, and now there's a new set of ley lines uh, drawing the power from space and the power from the sun, redirecting them into uh, Earth. And so this gives you uh, not only as the uh, as the tech ley line sorcerer, you now have the ability to draw on cosmic forces. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so you can then become part of the conduit between the cosmos and and the earth, the uh, micro and the macro. And whether there are uh, insane uh, entities surrounded by uh, amorphous flutists out there, or uh, some other. Uh, cosmic order of uh, space brothers, space brothers or magic, uh, you can then become the connection between uh, space and the Earth. And if you look at the magnetic field of the Earth, uh, and they just discovered this, and it was like an undergrad who did it, uh, because they were trying to figure out um, uh, something else entirely about the upper atmosphere, and they couldn't under it was like micro temporal temperature variations or something. And so they gave the data to the grad student to crunch because that's what you do, or undergrad to crunch, because she was really smart. And so they gave it to her to crunch, and she crunched through, and she said, these data make patterns. And they're like, oh, don't be silly. Data don't make patterns. And she mapped it onto a map of the Earth and said, look, they're geographically oriented, and they go in this series of straight lines like an orange segment. And the person said, well, you found a crazy artifact. That doesn't exist. And she said, well, let's send it around and see what people say. And so they sent it around, and there were atmospheric physicists who were like, you found the thing. We didn't know what that was, but we keep seeing this show up on our charts. And it turns out, oh. And so they, they went around to the guys who study the Earth's magnetic field, and they said, well, that's just magnetic fields. But we didn't know that they were localized. And so they all sort of, were all these different disciplines working alone had not traveled far, but when they correlated the contents they found this sort of pattern of atmospheric ley lines that are not ley lines, they found real things that exist, but they found this pattern of sort of magnetic channels where the random chance of Earth's atmosphere interacting suddenly all solves the situation, and so that becomes the uh, lowest voltage. It's not voltage, it's homage or however the hell it is. What is gaussage, right? Because it's magnets. Um, uh, now the electrical engineers are joining the, the, <laughs> the biologists sobbing on the floor. But the um, but the but the, the magnetic uh, flow happens along these specific sort of uh, uh, channels, and it's not like the channel is always over the same place because I assume it moves with the rest of the atmosphere with the moving of the magnetic poles. But that would be the kind of space ley line that your guys are channeling. Is they're channeling these giant 
full atmosphere, all embracing Van, not Van Allen belts, but the but the magnetic field in the upper atmosphere uh, 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 lines that are the way that the hostile energy of the Space Brothers is transmuted into good, beautiful energy by the goddess, right? Right. Um, and also, if we were starting thinking of ley lines uh, beyond our own planet, uh, there's Mars, and there's the canals on Mars. Well, that's what happens when somebody fries the ley grid, is that you wipe out all of civilization, but you leave the scorch marks on the planet. And so... Uh, that is, a, you know, Mars is a big cautionary tale hanging there, telling us not to engage in the tragedy of the ley line commons, because if too many people start jacking into that grid, you will blow everything up and fry everybody. And so that gives you your conflict in your campaign between your good preservers of the current state of the ley energy, or trying to make sure that the, the grid doesn't get overloaded, versus the... Uh, evil either conspiracy or just, you know, uh, messer with the ley lines of the weak group who so... Ley line terrorists. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, or just uh, uh, pirates, right? That they're, sometimes they're terrorists, sometimes they're trying to blow up the world by turning into Mars, by overloading the grid. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're trying to just siphon power for their own... Or, of course, to flip it, you have the uh, evil but necessary group that conserves the ley lines, but just happens to only ration it out to their buddies and people in power. Right. And the young hip happening jammer uh, ley line pirates who just want lay to be every you know lay power wants to be free man, but of course if it is then the earth blows up and turns into right. Mars. And of course naturally we're getting to the Feng Shui two setting. So right. if you want to uh, use this as as an example, you know that the uh, it's geomancy rather than. Uh, the made-up, uh, pale imitation Western version of it. So, uh, but that it's still true that there's this uh, magnetic connector between all of the the chi sites, and uh, that they go up into space, and that you could still have your your full metal nutball character have a geomantic detector installed in his chest, and he can find where the uh, the hot chi spots are, and that you could uh, discover that you know where did the architects go. Uh, in uh, the uh, second edition of Feng Shui, well, maybe they're up in orbit, and they uh, got through the portals before the mod uh, the futuristic setting fried itself. Uh, that's literally what happened when the chi bomb got dropped by the jammers in the in the modern in the futuristic set setting. Is the everything got fried out, and the, but the architects made it through, and they have techno magic. And maybe that's the uh, the architect conspiracy. So they've got all these people running around with cyborg. Uh, GPS chi implants, and uh, and that's how they come back. And so uh, your full metal uh, nutball character uh, uh, gets one in, and then starts to realize what the real plot is. And guess what? The uh, architects are up in orbit, waiting to come and get the modern world. Using uh, uh, planting their atmospheric uh, key lines that uh, only can be spotted by clever undergrads. Yes. So any other. Uh, uses of ley lines in pop culture that uh, people who want us to mention things want you to mention? Oh, I'm sure, but I don't care. Um, the other thing that you can do with ley lines besides power is obviously information transmission. And this is, again, a digital concept that is used back in the... Um, uh, it's used less by Michelle. Michelle is really talking about you know the Earth's um, health and energies. He's not quite so much thinking of it as a telegraph because he's not old enough to think of it as a telegraph and he's not young enough to think of it as a, um, uh, a cable. Uh, so he's in that magical spot where 
no one thought that. But the uh, notion that you can use, if you're standing at Stonehenge, you can use the ley lines to send a signal to the pyramids of Giza or to Sedona, Arizona, or wherever. And lays can act to transmit information. And since, obviously, DNA is information, they, you could teleport along a ley line, you could uh, bilocate, you could sit there and send the information of yourself so you're like a hologram, like in a Grant right. Morrison the, comic. The face on Mars is the one teleport uh, spot that's still open on Mars, right. so you can get to Mars, but then you're on Mars. But, 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 it, but it's also saying, do not come to Mars! Yeah. <laughs> the ley line grid is wrecked! Yeah. Get a word! <laughs> uh, I'm not a groaning face for nothing, you yes. jackasses. Not, Why did you come this, here? Who, who would come to this? Who would come to this face? <laughs> this is not a we don't smile like this on Mars. No one smiles like this anywhere. What is wrong with you people? Really? Yeah, so the, uh, so the use of lays, I think, as communication strikes me as, as obvious, but it's not as utilized in the literature. Uh, so if you're looking to do something cool with your lays, n think of them as methods by which you can transmit information and then think of information as broadly as you can. So information might be DNA, uh, it might be you know hologrammatic information, it might just be you know telepathy and messages, you might be getting messages from the creatures that live underneath the earth whose nervous system the ley lines are, uh, it, it could be any number of things, it could be um, a methodology by which uh, informationally Stonehenge is always the same Stonehenge when a certain stellar configuration is overhead because one Midsummer's Day is like all Midsummer's Days so you could use it as a time travel nexus right. go, go through a time gate at a lay, at a lay nexus I, I think that um, the, the again, whole ley line network could be right. Gaia could be Gaia right? and that's it, how you uh, commune with Gaia is by becoming one with the ley line network and uh, you, you, you fold yourself into it and uh, it, 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 depending on exactly what faith tradition you have, uh, communing with Gaia might be as harmless as just getting you know plus one on all, all Earth spells, or it might be that now Gaia is in your driver's seat telling you what to do, and you're just another Gaia puppet yes. walking around on the Earth. All of these organisms are causing trouble. Time for another mass extinction. You I'm, are my you are my instrument. You are my chosen one. You will bring out the new Permian extinction. Um, I'm I need to get up to speed on the old Permian. No, you do not. <laughs> yes. Trust me, I know the details. I know all. I will guide you. First, you just First cause colony collapse among the bees. Yeah. How do I do that exactly? Lay power. Yes. What is wrong with you? Then I need to Why are you male? Shut up. <laughs> yeah. I'm beyond your gendered construction. I am the earth goddess. <laughs> I'm not male. I just have a very deep voice. A very deep voice. Deep as the earth. You're gendering me again. Stop it. I'm beginning to rethink having picked you in the first place. <laughs> Go to a truck stop in Idaho. There, you either receive new instructions or you'll be assassinated by another... By the proper the Earth goddess. Yes. <laughs> um, how either is either? Shut up. <laughs> and why do I... Can't I? You just transmit me along the line? Ah, damn it. <laughs> so, that can, yeah, so, so that can be your, uh, your equivalent of your... Uh, your one unique thing mm -hmm. from 13th Age. Yes, yeah, the, you have an you, icon you, that you, helps you all the time. No, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's like taking a cross-country yeah. trip with someone. <laughs> Yes, you always roll the. You just always count yourself as having rolled the maximum negative and positive relationship exactly, to, that, yep. to, to that icon. Have we thoroughly mined uh, the uh, the one hundred and one plus a bunch of weirdo speculation on uh, ley lines? I think we have limbed the ley network for people. I do advise looking at the vile vortices theory by Ivan Sanderson because it gives you a bunch of places that are magic that people don't know about, and also obviously reading. Uh, John Michelle's books, all of which are delightful, but New View over Atlantis is your sort of one-stop shop. Paul Devereaux also, I think we've talked about him before. 
he is a good guy on Earth Mysteries in general, and so he also has some top-notch lay stuff. Great. Well, I think we've uh, therefore wrapped up this hotel room edition of Cartes. Uh, we're going to go and see if we can find some northern walking sticks and follow them to where the blueberries are. So we will uh, resume uh, next week uh, back in our usual recording conditions, but our voices will be completely shot as we wrap up the Gen Con experience that we have yet to have, but by the time you're listening to us, we'll have already had. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hot Grain Press. Ask Fagel. Heart Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing and great forbearance by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>